and tell them your favorite book or movie or TV show or YouTube, whatever, maker or YouTuber or something. Just turn to your neighbor. You know, turn to your neighbor. Tell them, favorite book, favorite movie, favorite story, favorite, yeah, favorite whatever, TV show. <laughs> what did you say, Chris? Twilight. Twi- twi- <laughs> All right, hey, thanks, everybody. So you, you're, you're saying Twilight, huh? Chris, Twilight, really? So do you know, at one point I was in a church, and I was helping out at the junior high ministry, and I realized I had nothing in common. Uh, with these junior hires. And so I just thought, well, maybe I'll read Twilight. Maybe that will get me. So I read all of those books. <laughs> I read them all. I remember staying up late at night trying to finish these books like two in the morning and I'll be like, oh my gosh, why are you acting this way? But anyway, yeah, to, well, no, I'm to, well, we won't talk about that. I mean, like, the interesting thing is you all have an answer to this story, don't you? You all have an answer, I mean, to this question, Right? I mean, some of you are like, I can't pick my favorite. You know, some of you are very decisive. How many of you have lists? Anybody have a list of favorite movies, shows? Nick, do you, do you rank them in your list? Yes, Nick does. That's, that, seems quite, that seems right. Um, so I don't know if you do or not. I mean, it's hard for me to, like, actually, like, tell you. It's, it's, for me, it's like a number of movies that are, that are really some of my favorites. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Interstellar. I don't know if... Any of you have watched that? I love that movie. I have little girls, though, so my little girls are in here. And Turn to your neighbor. You watched that movie at some point. So anyway, all right, so everyone has an answer to this question. Well, why do they have an answer to this question? Because we love stories, don't we? We just love stories. So British theologian and scholar and Anglican bishop uh, Tom Wright says, we are storytelling humans in a story-laden world. We are storytelling humans in a story-laden world. Stories move us. We tell the stories of our lives to one another. We instantly become closer. Have you noticed that to be true? You tell your, the story of your life to someone, and they reciprocate. You notice that you're much closer, right? And that's why a lot of our small groups start with life stories, I think. Is that right, Liz? Okay, yes. <laughs> that's good. Well, I mean, we do it in ours, but I thought maybe we're off program. But that's good that we're, we're together on that, right? So... And, and this is something else that N.T. Wright, Tom Wright says, tell someone to do something and you change their life for a day. And if you have children, maybe not that long. But tell someone a story and you change their life. Stories are so important that they are the most important building block in something that we call worldview. Anybody heard of that term before, worldview? You know, what's a worldview? It's the way that you see the world. <laughs> And that's, that's what it means. It's the way that you make sense out of the world. It's the way that you make sense out of the reality that is the world that we live in. That is a worldview. And without a story, actually, your worldview becomes problematic. How do I know that? Well, here's how I know that. We are in a story crisis right now. As a Lutheran theologian, Robert Jensen writes, the world has lost its story. Right? This is why every year more and more people identify as religious nuns. And that's not N-U-N-S. That's N-O-N-E-S, though. High fives of the nuns. But religious nuns increase every year. I won't go into detail about the massive shifts in thinking, that why that's actually happening. We talked about that last week. You can listen to that message if you'd like to. But in particular, with postmodernism, most people no longer believe 
in what we call a meta-narrative. Anybody ever heard of this term, meta-narrative? Maybe you've heard the term meta because that's, I guess, what Facebook is going to call itself now. Anybody? Like, what are you doing, Facebook? All right, well, meta. We are so meta. Anyway, meta-narrative, which basically means grand overarching story. Most people in postmodernism no longer believe that there is a grand overarching story that gives meaning to our existence. That's part of what it means to be postmodern. Here's how it happened. We used to believe that this universe... I mean, by saying we, I'm saying the world. The world used to believe, the Western world used to believe, I should say, that the, that, the, that the universe had a capital N narrator, all right? In other words, there was a grand storyteller. You can call that storyteller whoever you want, but a lot of people believe in God, a lot of people believe in Jesus, so they said that Jesus was the person who's the grand N narrator, and he told us the story that we were to live our lives into, right? That was kind of what it meant to be pre-modern back in the, I don't know, 1500s, 1400s, somewhere around then, you know. Um, but with the Enlightenment and with the Industrial Revolution, we entered into something called modernity or modernism. I know this is technical, but just stick with me because it's really important, all right? So we were pre-modern. We believed in a narrative with a capital N. We became modern, and instead what we believed is there was no N, capital N narrator. Humankind was put in the place of the narrator instead. So humankind told the grand overarching story. Humankind, in all of its capability, being able to make all these machines, being able to make all this technology, you know, they became the center of the universe when it came to what it mean, meant to be, you know, to exist in the world. And that's why we had things like higher criticism. So you, the erosion of the Bible as an authority came with modernism, because humankind put themselves above the Bible. This is the thing that happened, right? Somewhere around the 1800s, 1900s, right? And this thing called modernism. Humankind was at the center of the universe. And the problem with that is that machines rust and decay, right? And the other problem with that is humankind does not know everything, no matter how much we posture. We just don't know everything. Humankind cannot make humankind happy. If you try to make yourself happy in and of yourself, it's pretty hard to do, actually. Humankind does not know everything. Machines rust and decay, and they cannot fix the real problem, which is in here. So the overarching narrative of human progress, by the way, how many of you used to believe that things would just get better as time marched on? Things are just going to get better. Anybody believe that? Lots of people believe that. It's called progress. It's called the myth of progress. Most young people are like, that's not true. Things just don't get better, which is probably the reason why we have a lot of anxiety, you know. Part of what came with the modern story of, you know, like we stand at the center of the universe and we can tell the universe what it means and we're the, we're the architects of our own destiny is that progress was something that was a given because we were always going to constantly make things better, 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 better. Remember last week we talked about or the Wright brothers, they had flight and then, you know, 66 years later, all of a sudden we were like stepping on the moon. That's progress, right? Unfortunately, none of that progress really solves the real problem, which is in here. And so that story... The modern story collapsed, and thus we are with what we have been calling postmodernism. So we were pre-moderns, then we were moderns, and now we are postmoderns, which basically means there is no big story. 
We are responsible. Individuals are responsible for their own story. We talked about this last week, right? I have my own story. You have your own story. Whatever you believe is fine, man. The highest moral value in postmodernism is tolerance, right? So whatever you believe, no problem. My truth, and that's what it is. And your truth, and that's what your truth is, you know? Like, I'm not going to impinge on your truth. Well, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because humankind cannot simply, on its own, create plausible meaning out of the universe. It cannot. Humankind doesn't know everything. Humankind cannot fix our hearts. And here's the other reason why I know that it's not good news to be postmodern in this regard. I know that because if you look at the, the surveys on anxiety, despair, hopelessness, loneliness, it's all going way up. Yes, Chris? All going way up. Chris is our youth pastor. Chris knows this intimately. You did tell me that I, my favorite story was Twilight, so I do forgive you. But you do know that all of those things are rising, right? This is a problem. Here's another problem, by the way. Now that we're talking about good news, might as well keep going, right? Well, here's the other problem. We live in what is called the consumeristic culture. So what does that mean? That means that we think, the dominant way that we think of relating to the world means this. We think that we can purchase, buy, possess things. That's what we think. So that's kind of our primary mode of existence. We think of the world, we relate to the world as, well, we could buy it, we could purchase it, we could possess it, right? And so this impinges on story in this way. We think of stories as things we can buy, purchase, possess. We think of stories not as living into a story, but a thing that we can own, right? And the bad news about that is this. When stories no longer suit us, we can just dump them and leave them behind, like an old sweater, I don't like that sweater anymore. I don't like that story anymore. When a story begins to challenge us, when it begins to actually push us, when it begins to actually challenge us to change, we can say, We're, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to leave that story behind. That's really bad news. Do you know what happens to a child when they're not forced to make hard choices? I mean, those of you who have children, it's not good for them. It's not good for them. They do not flourish. They actually do terribly when they're not challenged to make hard choices. I have some good friends. Here's another example. I have good, some good friends who owned a bird. And the only thing that the bird would eat would eat this like candied seed. So that's all they fed the bird. It's the only thing that the bird would eat. It was not nutritious to eat that seed at all. And guess what happened to that bird? That bird died within a year. You know, I'm not saying, this is not a doomsday scenario here, but I'm just saying that we live in this crisis of story. You see what happened from pre-modern to modern to post-modern. And we also live in a consumeristic culture, which means that we think of stories not as things that we live into, but as things that we can own or possess. So what is the solution? The solution is, again, the story of God. The solution is the kingdom of God. The solution is the story of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, loving this world, redeeming this world, renewing this world. The solution is to recognize that we have a story. In a world that has lost its story, guess what? We've got one. And we have the best, we have the most beautiful, we have the most plausible, we have the truest story in the universe. This is why I have hope right now, guys. When you think about all this collapse of the way that we start to think about meaning, I'm like, wait, hey, I'm going to hold my hand up and say, over and against all of the anxiety, all of the despair, all of the hopelessness, we have hope. And it's our story. And in order to play our parts, 
appropriately, experience the fullness of what God has for us. Two scholars write this. We need to know the biblical story well. And we need to feel it in our bones. We need to take the story of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our bodies, into our thinkings, into our desires, and into our actions because we can bring hope to a world that has lost its story. So, over the next 10 to 12 weeks or so, we are going to do our level best to tell that story. We're going to do a broad, grand, sweeping overview of the story of all stories, the story of the one who loves us so much that he gave himself for us. We're going to tell that story. So we're going to start the beginning of the Bible, and we're going to go all the way to the end. And believe me, that sounds like it could take years, but we're going to try to do it in two and a half months. Pray for us. Please do pray for us. We think that you knowing this story, that us knowing this story will help us to love God more because we will see how deeply we are loved. We think that knowing this story will help us know how to act and live into the world in a world that has lost its story. We're going to find that story out again together. And um, one other thing that we want to do, maybe a little bit differently in this message series, is we want to tell the story of the Bible through the lens of restorative justice, Okay? So the, through the lens of restorative justice, because we believe that restorative justice is the best way that we can show the world a better story, right? So remember the definition of restorative justice. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We, it's restorative justice. God restoring his intention for all of his good creation. That's what restorative justice means. And so because it's restoring his intention for all his good creation, we're going to start when his good creation was actually created at Genesis 1. So today, we're going to look at Genesis 1. So if you've got your Bible, um, you can open it up. This is going to be really easy to find. It's at the very, very beginning. And if you've got your phone, I mean, it's easy to find anyway. But we're going to look at Genesis 1 together. And you're probably thinking, how are we going to do this in 15 minutes? And I'm, like, I'm with you. I'm not quite sure. But here we go. Genesis 1. And Steve, now by the way, we were going to do creation in one week, but then Steve read my message and said, are you sure that we, were going to, we should do this in one week? Shouldn't we do this in two weeks? So we're going to do it in two weeks. So thank you, Steve, for that suggestion. So here we are, Genesis 1. Um, all right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's verse 1 and verse 2. Now, verses like, just want to make put it aside here. Now, verses like Hebrews 11 testify that God created everything there is out of nothing, right? So you, some of you may know this, ex nihilo or ex nihilo, or however you pronounce it. You know, God creating out of nothing. Um, but I think Genesis 1 is more interested in telling us how God brought order to chaos, okay? And so as many of you know also, just as a, an aside, um, the creation account is broken up into seven days, Right? So the first three days, God divides the realms of his universe, right? So you see a little, there's a little chart in your program that shows this, and I think we've got it up on the screen here. But the first three days, which is God creating um, the realms or dividing the realms of his universe, and then the second three days, David, if you could put that up, that'd be great, the chart. Here we go. Yeah, and it's also in your programs. The second three days, God kind of like populating the realms with agents. So like, just keep that in mind as we read this. We don't have time to go into it in super great detail, but just something to keep in mind. Verses, uh, first three days, 
dividing the realms, the second three days, populating the realms. Um, and I'll just also say this as before we keep going, right? This story is so beautiful. It is so, so beautiful. It almost feels strange that we're reading this with these, like, words, you know? But I would just like to invite you to amuse your imaginations as you listen to this. And also, I'd like to invite you, as you listen for the word good, replace that word good with pleasing or beautiful, right? So, and, and as we see it was good, we're going to read that together, all right? So, okay, so here we are, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was, everyone, good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, third day. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Oh, let's try that again. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And everybody, and God saw that it was good. Now, why did I have you say good um, over and over again as a community? Because the word good is incredibly important. As we talk about restorative justice, the word good is just about the best word to describe the intention of God. He made his creation good. 
So you hear me, you hear us say all the time, God's good creation. What are we referring to? We're referring to Genesis 1. We were referring to the word good that you keep hearing over and over again in this chapter, right? He made it. It's very good. Very beautiful. His intention is to display that beauty for his glory. In fact, that beauty is so radiant that the Apostle Paul would say, use your eyes, man, just use your eyes. The Apostle Paul would say later in Romans, I mean, look, his, God's invisible qualities are hiding in plain sight. When we open our eyes and we look at his good creation, yeah? All right, so I would just like to take a moment and talk about the different ways the church has understood the story of creation. So what's actually happening here, right? I'm going to quote a Genesis commentary my wife wrote, my wife over there. She's an Old Testament scholar. Uh, so I'm just going to basically read exactly what she wrote in her commentary. There are five common views. I'm going to share a sixth one that Steve shared with me too, right? There are five common views, though, that most people hold when it comes to what actually happened at Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, right? And the first one, you've probably heard it before, it's the literal 24-hour day view. So it describes how God created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days followed by a day of rest. That's the first View. The second view is the gap view. Genesis 1-1 recounts the initial creation of the heavens and the earth. This is followed by a gap in which Satan fell and destroyed the earth, making it formless and void, which is what happens in verse 2. So the six days of creation describe God creating the world. Anybody heard this view before? If, it, if, you, if you have a Jewish background, maybe you've heard this view before. There's like a lot of mythology that relates to between the first and the second day. Um, okay, so the third view, the day-age view. How many of you heard this before? The seven days of creation are not actual 24-hour periods, but geological ages. Anybody heard this view before, the day-age view? Yeah, so this view essentially um, it comes from the, from the Hebrew word yom. Yom is the Hebrew word for day, but it could be like inconclusive whether that's day or actually like a longer period of time. And so that's kind of where this comes from, all right? Number four is the literary view. So the seven-day structure is not a literal account of how God created the universe, but a literary device, highlighting the perfection of God's creations in seven, symbolically represents wholeness and completion. All right, that's the literary view. The fifth view is the temple dedication view. So temple dedication would typically take anybody, how many days? Seven. Seven. So the seven-day structure portrays God dedicating the heavens and the earth, which he had already formed, by the way, is a cosmic temple where he could dwell with his creation. These are five commonly held views, and these are commonly held views by people who are conservative, um, incidentally. Uh, Steve was also telling me about a sixth view, um, one that I've never heard of, but it's really interesting, namely that if you think of, say, Moses as the author of the, Gen- of the Genesis 1 account, the days are days of revelation. So every day... Moses received progressive revelation of how the earth was made, or the heavens and the earth was made. So the first day, God showed the author this. The second day, God showed the author that. Six different views. You could, of course, hold multiple views, like someone could hold the day-age view and the temple dedication view, and then other, like, conflations occur too, right? So how many of you heard of young earth creationism? Anybody heard of Young Earth Creationism, was this an attempt to blend modern scientific theory with Genesis 1, right? So it's a young earth, dates the earth about six or 7,000 years, um, seven literal days in which the heavens and the earth are created, and then they try to go back and date the, date 
date the earth that way. Um, and they're not alone, right? So they're not alone in the, this kind of harmonizing of modern scientific theory and Genesis 1. That happens with a lot of these other views. So this might be disappointing to you, but I'm not going to tell you which view to hold to this morning. Here, though, are uh, um, some important things to hold in consideration, all right? The first, we live in a world that is dominated by scientific thinking. So we think of stories, especially origin stories, through a scientific lens, right? So uh, there's a very famous Old Testament scholar, John Walton. He writes, we believe reality is described most accurately in scientific terms. How many of you believe that? We believe that reality, oh, not very many of you. Okay, well, well, anyway, we believe that reality is described most accurately in scientific terms. This is actually a relatively new development, only like a few hundred years old. But this scientific lens view is not the way that the people of ancient Israel thought. In their world, their stories held explanatory power. And in their stories, function, okay, now this is going to get technical for a minute, but function rather than structure was a dominant concern. So here's what I mean. What function, in other words, ancient Israel are asking, what function did the natural world have as it relates to the purposes of the divine? That's what they were concerned with. They were concerned with this thing about function, right? Our world now, though, is more interested in structure. So we're more interested in material structure. We're more interested in natural causality. We're more interested in physical makeup and the laws of the universe, right? So here's what I mean by that. Function versus structure, right? So in the world of ancient Israel, if a blood moon was happening, they would ask a bunch of questions. They would ask questions like this. What is God trying to tell us? What is God doing? The questions, in other words, for ancient Israel revolved around the who. Who is making this happen, and what do you want to tell us? In our world, though, we don't ask those questions. When a blood moon happens, we go... Well, kids, let's, you know, set an alarm for 2 a.m. And so the kids wake up. They're like, what are we doing? And we're looking at the blood moon. They're like, like, why are we doing this? And we're like, well, because it's a lunar eclipse. Isn't that really interesting? We're, like, interested in how, right? We're interested in how, not as much as interested in the who. And I must say that neither, neither question is less true than the other. The who or the how question, one is not more true than the other. They're just different kinds of questions. Now, I'm not saying that ancient Israel wasn't interested in how, nor am I saying that ancient Israel didn't see this account as explanatory. It did. It totally did, right? But what I am saying is that ancient Israel saw the who question as the primary container. So all the how questions fit into the who question. The who question was the main question that they were asking, right? Whereas in our world, the how question is the question that we're interested in asking. And the who question goes into that container. Do you see what I mean? So the dominant concern for ancient Israel was who, who, who is behind all of this? Who is behind all of this? When that means that the most important thing communicated in this passage for ancient Israel is that heaven and earth and everything in them are the masterpiece of God. The who question. Who is behind all of this? Who is behind all of this? And Genesis 1 answers that question and in spades, doesn't it? It answers who? It answers who? And, you know, this is the one thing that unites all five views I gave above, or all six views. Every single one of these six views affirms that God is our creator. He made the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one to believe, okay? If I'm honest, I think I might lean mostly toward the literary view. But even that view falls short because 
of the power of this story for ancient Israel. It wasn't for them just like a song or a poem. It was also like it answered the question for them how it all happened. So standing above the formless void is our God, and through his word, everything came into being. I believe that. For the ancient Israelites, this chapter, Genesis 1, is worship. It's not like science, but it's worship. It's like doxology, man. I mean, like they would read Genesis 1 and they would probably lift up their hands and say, Yahweh is Lord. God is Lord. Genesis 1 is an affirmation. It's a song. It's a poem. It's a hymn. But it's also deeply, deeply true. If I had to call Genesis 1 anything, I think I'd agree with C.S. Lewis. Who writes in The Magician's Nephew, In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. If you had seen and heard it as Degree did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. I think C.S. Lewis would call this the song of creation. And I guess the question that I would ask you is, are you listening? Are you listening? You may recall that I spoke about how we're going to tell the story from a restorative lens, right? Like particularly restorative justice. What does restore mean? Well, it means to come back. It means return, right? Well, what are we returning to? We're returning to this. This is the beginning. And it's so beautiful. The world dawned, ordered by our Father as Eden. And guys, did you know that this is the world that we're going back to? Listen to this. Then the angel showed me the river. This is from the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. I don't have time to read the rest of this, but doesn't that sound like it could be Genesis 2? Doesn't that sound very similar to Genesis 1? Well, there's a reason for that. And this is actually, by the way, Revelation 22. So this is the very end. So we just read the very beginning of the Bible, and we just read the very end of the Bible. These are the one and the same, except with more people. So no longer will there just be Adam and Eve, but all of us 
It would be a great city, but it's actually the same thing. We, when we talk about restorative justice, we think about, like, we, one mistake that we make is we think, oh, yeah, we're going to agitate toward the future and coming kingdom of God. And, yes, we are doing that. Well, let's not forget that that future and coming kingdom of God was already established. At Eden, we were turning back to Eden. We were turning back to Eden. We are all about Eden, which is why we have plants in the lobby, which is why we probably want plants in here. We just want to be a little more connected to Eden. And so here's where we're going to end the story this morning. And some of you are thinking, well, okay, that's good because we're out of time. Well, here's where we're going to end the story this morning, but I just want to do one thing really quickly, all right? Next week, we're going to talk about being made in God's image. That's the next part of the story. Uh, and we're going to get into environmental justice in the coming weeks. So we're going to talk about what it means to be stewards of God's good creation. But I'd like to leave us with the words of the great Catholic poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who writes in his poem, The Grandeur of God, this. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men or humankind then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge, and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. I know that's a really technical poem, but I think the point of it is this. Isn't this kind of what we do? When we take the earth that is charged with the greatness of God and we sear it, we tread upon it, we trample it, we bleed it with our toil, we wear shoes, we run on concrete. I mean, I'm not saying don't wear shoes. I'm just saying we're not connected with the Eden that we've come from. We're in cars, we drive around, or in my case, I'm in a scooter or on a scooter. Yes, I'm 20 miles an hour, I'm like flying. But anyway, we're like I'm on a scooter, we're in our cars, and we've lost our connection with Eden. When was the last time that your bare feet touched the earth? Probably not right now, I know, but when was the last time? I think this is the invitation for this week. This is our invitation for this week. Would you come back to Eden for this week? Would you maybe just go outside, soak in a sunset? Would you go out in nature? Would you take a walk, turn off your phone? Go into a park, take a walk, walk around? Um, say with saying amen um, to the voice of cre- the creator who called this very good. Could you do that? Could you do that? I mean, wear your winter coat, please. Or Katie, I know you're in because you love this stuff. But, like, uh, I mean, wh- would you all do this? Would you just go out for just a small, just a very short walk even this week just to reconnect with Eden? I'm not going to stop until you all raise your hands. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Wear your winter coat. Wear your winter coat, please. I mean, here's the, here's the promise of doing that, by the way, you know. Here's the promise of doing that, by the way. I really got to be done because I'm way over, as I usually am. But here's the promise of doing that. This is what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds of the air. This is what he says. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? We live in a very anxious, worrying time, but we have hope. How are we going to access that hope? Well, Jesus tells us, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Look, take in God's good creation. Reconnect with the place that we're from. Reconnect with Eden.